everyone. Welcome back to the St. Paul's Morning Report podcast. It's been a little while. I'm Daniel Ennis, and I'm joined, as always, by Barry Casson and Steph Voye. Hey, guys. Hey, guys. Hey, How are you doing? <laughs> nice to hear everyone again. It's been too long, and we have really great news, actually, because Dr. Katrina Ditkevich is now a permanent host on the show. So now there's four of us, so the episodes will now be two hours long. Um, which is what everyone was clamoring for. But Katrina, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. And it was fun to present some cases in the past. So uh, looking forward to being a more permanent part of the team. So that's that's really exciting. So we have, um, in addition to that, um, which deserves its own lengthier introduction, we actually just have a ton of housekeeping to get through. So let's do that. The way that the show is going to move forward is we're going to kind of extend the boundaries uh, a little bit in that any listener from across the country is welcome to bring a case if they think it would be good to present on the show. Of course, we still have standards for getting consent from patients or from family. And so if you do have a case, even if you're not in British Columbia or Vancouver, please do get in touch and we will organize doing your case on, on the podcast. So I'll just give you some contact info. So you can email us at foundationmorningreport at gmail.com. You can contact us through the website, which is stpaulsmorningreport.com, or on Twitter at paul underscore report, <laughs> the Paul Report. And uh, please get in touch, and we'd, we'd love to hear from people elsewhere in the country. I, we, we are hoping that this will uh, generate enough cases that we can kind of more consistently put out episodes, Re- really the thing that slows us down other than just like logistics of getting us all together online here is is uh, just having cases worthy of um, Barry Casson and Steph Boye and now uh, Katrina Ditkevich. So um, that is that. Anything else for housekeeping that we have? So just to, uh, to say that not only uh, would we welcome people from within British Columbia, Vancouver, BC, and Canada, but any of our listeners from any place that would be interested in presenting, we'd be interested in in participating with you. Okay, sounds good to me. So, house kept, and now we get to move on to today's show. So, we're joined by Dr. Mariam Gubran, and actually, Mariam, maybe I'll I'll hand it over to you, and you can uh, give give a little introduction of yourself. Sure. Uh, I'm excited to be here. I'm a first year internal medicine resident at the University of British Columbia. Before then, I trained at the U of A in Edmonton. And prior to that, I'm proud to be from Saskatoon. So kind of coming closer and closer to uh, better weather here. Miriam, <laughs> can great. I just say before you finish the introduction that I also am a proud Saskatoon born person? That's lovely to hear. <laughs> what, what's the deal with the Saskatoon berry? I, I think I've had them before, but I'm not totally sure. Are they a winner? Are they good? Well, I am the Saskatoon Berry. <laughs> I'm that not sure what, is... what you're referring to. <laughs> Great. You really walked okay. into that one, Danny. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I really lobbed that over the plate for Barry. Ba-boom, boom. That's a softball. <laughs> yeah. That must have been right. intentional. <laughs> no, honestly, uh, I would never, Cat, never <laughs> intentionally give Barry a joke uh, to make. That's a softball. <laughs> Okay. Well, um, Miriam, thanks. Thanks so much for preparing a case. And we're really looking forward to it. So maybe without further ado, unless any other surprise pre-case interruptions. No. Fabulous. Okay. 
to the case. Miriam, we hand it over to you and we will be quiet for like 10 seconds. <laughs> Alrighty. So the case I'm presenting today is a previously healthy 72-year-old man. His presenting complaint was a three-day history of confusion and agitation. Just to give you an idea of what you know this person was like prior to this presentation, he's a very healthy patient on no prescribed medications. Um, he's a retired truck diver who was very active. He had just returned from a kayaking trip in Vancouver Island and was training for his first ultra marathon. So before his presentation with confusion, he had kind of been having this one-month history of intermittent left leg weakness some new fatigue and then intermittent headaches, but he was otherwise pretty well. He had an initial admission to hospital before we were involved in his care. It's just to kind of summarize what happened during that admission. He had imaging with CT non-con and a CT angiogram to rule out a stroke or a vascular abnormality which showed um, that the ventricles were prominent, but everything was otherwise normal. His vascular imaging was normal, or her blood work was essentially completely normal as well. His blood and urine cultures were as negative. His CRP was 0.3, but then he had an LP, which was very, very abnormal. There's no opening pressure recorded in, in those records, but he had a white count of 39 times 10 to the power of six leukocytes with 97% lymphocytes, which is incredibly high, uh, a mildly low glucose at 1.8 millimoles per liter and very, very high protein at 3,052 milligrams per liter. And the upper limit of normal for that is 450. His gram stain and culture were negative. His viral PCR was negative as well. Um, he ended up having empiric treatment for meningitis with ceftriaxone, ampicillin, acyclovir, but which was eventually stopped when those studies were negative. But then he just spontaneously improved and essentially was back to baseline about a month after presentation. And so the working diagnosis was maybe this was a viral encephalitis um, that improved spontaneously, and then he was discharged without patient follow-up. Um, unfortunately, he was only at home for about three days before recurrence of his confusion and agitation, and he ended up being readmitted. He continued to deteriorate um, with kind of progressive functional and cognitive decline. Once again, basic blood work completely unremarkable. Repeat LP, essentially the same thing, as, except that this time um, we had an opening pressure which was elevated at 30 centimeters of water. Repeat imaging without contrast just showed progressive hydrocephalus, but no abnormalities. And then he had an MRI with contrast, which showed leptomeningeal enhancement uh, of certain cranial nerves. Um, so I'd like to take a minute here to uh, kind of pause and ask the group, what are you considering on your differential at this point, And uh, what would you like to investigate next? <laughs> so, wow, we really, we got right into it. And it, it's been a while since we've done this. So this felt like uh, opening the covenant of the Ark in uh, Indiana Jones. And that just like melted my face with all that info. Wow, what a case. Okay, well, um, maybe I'll bury, let's, let's say Kat. Kat, what, let's say what Kat. are your thoughts? Yeah, let, Katrina, what are your thoughts on the case so far? Well, I guess uh, I... I'm going to present, uh, well, I'll tell you, <laughs> I'll tell you my thoughts about the case, but, but I'm not going to go too far into it as, uh, Miriam and I have worked together on this, but I just wanted to emphasize a little bit for you, um, this patient's presentation. And, and Miriam has alluded to it a little bit, but just in fact, the drastic change in how he was previous to coming to hospital compared to how he was when he presented on on these two admissions and particularly mm -hmm. that you know training for long distance ultra marathons kayaking with his wife um, before coming in with this quite significant altered level of consciousness and i think as you said miriam's given you quite a lot of investigations right off the bat in terms of what was done and i think um, what many of us would do for sort of a non-specific neurologic presentation uh, you know, with altered level of consciousness without a clear cause, making sure that um, you get a, a lumbar puncture. 
But then thinking about, you know, when things don't resolve as you expect them to, with even some of the empiric treatment for what seemed to be most likely, um, then considering what might have been missed or what could um, be some other causes for the presentation. Um, Mm -hmm. So I I won't give too much of my thoughts, as I said, because I have some insider info into this case, but I'm interested to hear sort of what are the other things um, that uh, some of us might be thinking about at this point, rather than what Miriam's uh, alluded to has been typically considered and and potentially already ruled out. Hmm. Okay, so you get get a pass on this case. (laughs) You don't have to go down with the ship when we get it wrong. Maybe Steph, over to you. What what do you what 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 are your first thoughts? I think I think a mistake that I've made many, 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 many times on this show and that I'm gonna try to make less often moving forward is that I right away start to use pattern recognition to try to make a diagnosis. I have <laughs> Oh, I'm very tempted to do that now, but I'm gonna try to resist the temptation. Um, I, I think one thing that I am gonna try to do better on this show moving forward is to actually role model in my discussion of these cases how I would actually try to solve this in real life. And so I think the way that it starts for me is that I start with a good characterization of the problem and then a good problem list. So like mm-hmm. this sounds like a ridiculously healthy guy and too healthy. Whatever yeah, whatever pathophysiology we end up like whatever diseases we end up talking about, they have to map on to a pathophysiological process that is very, very, very acute that happens very suddenly. So like he's got enlarged mm-hmm. ventricles, right? So, so ventriculomegaly is going to be on my problem list because I wonder if that might be a, a good window to look at this case with, but this isn't an illness script for normal pressure hydrocephalus, you know, it's like that would be kind of a wrong thing to have on your differential diagnosis at this point. So I'm putting down ventriculomegaly and in my on my problem list I'm actually going to label that as like question mark acute ventriculomegaly. Similarly, mm-hmm. I think he's got other key features like leptomeningeal enhancement on an MRI and a lymphocyte predominant CSF process. And I'm going to hope mm-hmm. that in adding those to my problem list and at some point probably putting those into Google or some other place that I'm going to start to get a fruitful or at least the beginnings of a a differential diagnosis. So I've got to think of an acute process that causes a lymphocyte predominant infiltrative or or inflammatory process in the CSF that also is associated with ventriculomegaly and uh, leptomeningeal enhancement. I know that maybe that sounds really mm-hmm. vague and maybe this is going to make my discussion here less fun, but that is what I'm going to try to do. Does that make sense, Barry <laughs> and Danny? Yeah, 100%. I think that's a, a helpful way of uh, of organizing the thinking. It, what what we should also try and do on the show moving forward is is to kind of describe our differential, you know, just the, in broad strokes. How are we even approaching these cases? And Barry, you've seen cases like this before, I'm sure. How would you kind of outline your differential when you would just coming in the door, starting to see this person. What are like the big categories you're thinking of? Well, that, thanks, Danny. And uh, I think the comments that Beth made are really good. I, one of the things that when I was listening to this is that if I can just summarize again, here's a perfectly, not perfectly, he's extremely healthy, adventurous guy who's doing something on Vancouver Island. I guess, training and living on Vancouver Island, who has a neurologic event 
that resolves, but in the course of the evaluation, has had a very abnormal CSF uh, by lumbar puncture and a slightly abnormal imaging study. And then, upon complete resolution, I'm assuming, has a, a different neurologic presentation, a new imaging, but same LP studies, and the new imaging shows leptomeningeal enhancement. And I guess what I'm thinking of, so you asked what my differential, and I, I think, I can't think of any common infections, either bacterial or viral infections, that would present this way. So I think that, and even mycobacterial, not even, but mycobacterial fungal infections, I also don't think are going to present this way. So in a differential, there may be some infections that might present this way, Jacob uh, Kreutzfeldt or others, but but this is not, if this is an infection, it's a really unusual infection. And I would think that that's the less likely thing. So I guess looking at this presentation, most times we have a differential that is a positive listing the possibilities. And I've now listed the impossibilities from my point of view of what I think it is and still have a host of other potential possibilities. And I have to say that a host is probably um, more dramatic than I meant to say, but I, I. But there should be other neurologic presentations that would incorporate what Stefan was saying about the ventriculomegaly and the leptomeningeal component, and try to then form a differential. But that's that's how I would approach it. Okay, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a little bit of a stab at it. So, I think that in terms of you know big categories, infection, inflammatory disorders, malignancy other toxicities. Those would kind of be like major categories, I would think of with this person rolling in, you can narrow it down, um, as as Steph was saying by like, well, pick one of these unusual features like leptomeningeal enhancement or the prominent ventricles, one of them, and maybe narrow it down by typing that into Google and thinking about like, well, what's the differential specifically for leptomeningeal enhancement? And it to your point that like infection, like it would have to be an unusual infection. I think when we've talked about infection before, you and and Steph for sure have been very careful about saying like it really like the social history really matters. So sexual history, travel history, exposures, and the things that I'm aware of on Vancouver Island that may cause encephalitis, meningitis, leptomeningeal enhancement. That I I think Steph, this may have been what you were kind of uh, flicking at earlier was like cryptococcus coccidioidal infections, tuberculosis, like those. And and someone who's like kayaking, maybe camping, I'd be curious about other camping-related infections like amoeba infections, amoebiasis, stuff like that. In terms of inflammatory things, huge list, probably not worth mentioning them up front. But one question that I have to go back to is when this person was treated um, with ceftriaxone, ampicillin, acyclovir, did they also get steroids? Because dexamethasone is kind of used with some frequency in people who, who are coming in with meningitis, encephalitis. So I wonder if, if that was part of the upfront treatment. Can we fill that info in? So as, as far as I know, the patient actually did not receive any steroids during that first uh, presentation. Hmm. So then I, I'm not sure that I have a great explanation for why they improved. So I, I say like I, I would, yeah, that would have been really helpful. <laughs> but but so I, I have not solved that component of the case yet. But I'm not sure that like the list of things that can do this has really been adjusted from the first presentation to the second presentation per se. I'm not sure things have been sliced off the list um, as of yet. 
fair to say. Yeah, I mean, I think those I think agree with the categories that you brought up and that Barry brought up. I think to me, there's like a there's something that sort of smells possibly perineoplastic or autoimmune about this just because it comes so out mm. of the blue. And, it, you know, I think that we, we've ha- have had these clusters of crypt- cryptococcal infections on Vancouver Island, but this is a very, very acute presentation. And he would have to have been, in my mind, immunocompromised for him to present like this. So, yeah, I don't know. Um, I think this is going to yeah, be it's gonna be something weird. So, I mean, the other thing is that, uh, you know, if we take s- strictly an anatomical approach, I mean, could he have some intermittent obstruction that's precipitating his acute neurologic problems and then that inter- that obstruction is relieved for whatever reason and that would account for potentially account for the ventriculomegaly and the and the leptomeningeal which could be part of that process and that's why he resolves and really it's not our medications that are making the resolution but it's some mechanical problem if that was true Maybe. would you expect to see the high white count high protein low glucose in the CSF well, I guess it depends what the obstruction is. I mean, if there's, if certainly if there was simply a, a ball valve mechanical obstruction, I guess I don't know enough about it to actually say yes or no. But if the pathophysiology of that ball valve includes some sort of inflammatory or other process, I suppose it's possible. I want to add one thing to like the infection list that we we do need to think of because it's always it's endemic here in in BC, probably elsewhere too. And I, I, I didn't hear it on the original LP, but I just saw a case that, that relates. But we should always think of syphilis. You know, I'd have to go back and look at, well, does it cause a lymphocytic uh, LP specifically? Does it cause high pressures? Does it cause the leptomeningeal enhancement? I believe it does. But that would be kind of one of the other like common infections that even me as not a non-infectious diseases person might, might think of in, in a, a Vancouverite. Oh, Dan, Danny, I think I just want to say, I think that's that's a great, I mean, I think syphilis could probably in, fit into differentials, most of the differentials we talk about. And I think that this certainly would be potentially that type of problem. Thank you, Barry. All right. Thanks so, coming, uh, <laughs> yeah, thank you. Uh, okay. So kind of outlined some of our, our general thoughts on the case. Sounds like a pretty sick guy. Maybe, uh, Miriam, can you kind of tell us how the initial kind of stages of his second hospitalization started to go? Yeah, uh, I can also give you some answers to kind of some of the the tests and, and differentials that you mentioned, if you'd like. Perfect. Yes, please. So syphilis, um, EIA was non-reactive. HIV testing was also negative. As you can imagine in, in this patient, you know, he was very quickly deteriorating. So um, we had multiple specialties involved to kind of work as fast as we could. And one of them was ID. And so um, he had an interferon gamma release assay to check for a TB, and that was indeterminate. Uh, and then we sent CSF for mycobacterial culture and stain for acid fast bacilli, and those were negative as well. Um, and then the ID team also recommended checking for cryptococcal antigen, which was negative. We also sent off serologies for histoplasma, Borrelia burgdorferi, and Brissola abortus, um, and those were all negative as well. Uh, with regards to kind of the perineoplastic uh, autoimmune section that you guys were mentioning, we sent off the mitogen panel to Calgary, and it was entirely negative as well. Uh, and then kind of other autoimmune things, his ANA was very weakly positive at 1.7, but the ENA screen was negative. Complement levels were normal. Rheumatoid factor was negative, and then ANCA panel was negative as well. And did anyone do an ACE level at that point? 
Uh, and ace knuckle was sent, but it was pending for a very, very long time. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And you can also send an ace on the, the lumbar puncture if you're wondering about uh, like a cute sarcoid. Do you know, Danny, how um, helpful that ace is on the LP? Because I know when I've read into ace levels in the serum in the past, they're really not that sensitive or specific for sarcoidosis, but I don't know specifically about the LP ones. Yeah, that's a great question. I, I actually don't know how well it, like its sensitivity specificity on a lumbar puncture. So I would, you're right, I should look that up before I suggest it. I think it's a good suggestion, but I, I just have the, the difficulty I have is that it doesn't necessarily reflect sarcoid if it's positive, I guess. And, and, and in part, this diffuse nature of the leptomeningeal involvement suggests to me that I, I maybe I don't know enough about sarcoid to say that I, I don't think this would be the presentation, but I don't know the, the imaging of sarcoid in the CNS that would suggest that this would be sarcoid. I think you can have like more focal or, or diffuse involvement. Okay. Um, just depends. Um, so I, I wouldn't exclude it uh, up front. Yeah. With, with that question, Barry, it also reminds me like this is something that you do so well is that when there's one of these weird cases, you really treat the radiologist or whoever's interpreting the imaging or the pathology or whatever as a as a radiologic consultant so this is another one that i would you know take myself down to the radiology department find the best neuroradiologist at my center to have a look at these images and and really tell me what they think see if they recognize some kind of pattern that might be helpful mm -hmm. i yeah, think that's definitely. a good idea okay so um is that <laughs> Miriam? should we do we need to keep solving from there? Is there any info that kind of just rolled out uh, for us to work off at this point? Maybe, maybe before you uh, you answer that, Miriam, I guess the issue is, and I, I would ask all of us, so this is a man that comes in this way. We're going to, we're looking at a differential diagnosis and we still don't know what's happening, but from the description, he has a personality change and has a level of consciousness change uh, and I guess a cerebral function change. I would put it to us not not Katrina because she knows the case but what would you do what what would you do when you saw this person present this way as you're waiting diagnostic uncertainty Steph I have a wheel I have a wheel in my office and uh, it has 40 different wedges in it and every second wedge is either immunosuppression or antimicrobial and so in this case I would go up to my office and I would spin the wheel and if I landed on immunosuppression, I would immunosuppress the patient. And otherwise, I would offer them broad-spectrum antimicrobials. Okay. Danny, what would you do? I might go for a bit of both. And so I, I think here I would, I would ask ideas like, is there any infection that you think this person could legitimately have despite the negative testing with everything that you know about your histo and crypto testing? Are they sensitive enough to, that you are confident they do not have an infection that will get dramatically worse with steroids? And either they say, well, we should probably start treatment for TB or whatever because it's lymphocytic or whatever they come up with. We should start treatment for that. And then on my side, if they kind of give me the ID, go ahead. Yeah, like I, I think in the same way that there was kind of evolving evidence around steroids in encephalitis and meningitis, even infectious versions uh, of those. I think we have little to lose given the severity of his presentation. So I would aim for earlier treatment with glucocorticoids as long as we're covering appropriate like microbe etiologies. So I think, uh, yeah, I, that's that's what I do, which is like the same wishy-washy answer I feel like I always give. But I feel like it's not 
wrong or is it <laughs> very so I, am I, I wrong i don't think am i wrong, wrong. No, I don't. I, so I would, I would do three things. Well, four. I'd probably phone the family and say, "I don't know what the hell's happening." That would be the first, probably the first thing. I think that <laughs> I would give thiamine for no good reason, uh, except that it can cause encephalopathy and 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 these presentations. And maybe there's something that I just don't understand. I would treat for tuberculosis, and I would treat uh, because of the equivocal. I mean, it's not really. It, it doesn't really matter. This the. The IGRA is equivocal, but I'm not sure I would have done an IGRA. But in any case, I would treat for TB, and I treat in that treatment would include glucocorticoids, mm-hmm. and I would treat for active CNS TB. Can I suggest something right. different? Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. I would put this man in the scanner, scanner of choice, like PET scanner or CT scanner, and scan him from bow to stern, looking for an underlying malignancy. Mm. Because if this is like a, you know either perineoplastic or metastatic process, I, I wouldn't want to miss that. And I would talk, like every case that we talk about here, I would talk about trying to get some tissue. In this case, it's a meningeal biopsy, which I realize is no joke, but I I would at least, if the guy's going down the tubes, and I don't even know if he is, we haven't talked about it, <laughs> we haven't had a clinical update in a while, but if he's really, really <laughs> sick, maybe it's worth trying to get a piece, a relevant piece of him. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I was doing some thinking about this because I think we, um, one, we probably go to brain biopsy too late sometimes. And I think there's, just because it's the brain, reasonably, people are very reluctant to take a chunk out of it. And, and so to that end, in, in like CNS vasculitis or cases like this, where it's like, well, the treatment, re- it really matters what they have. I just did a little bit of reading around that, and there's there is actually a meta-analysis of brain biopsies that suggested blah blah blah, lots of other stuff in there we're talking about, but the general rate of adverse events or serious adverse events was about three percent, and for a conventional angiogram, it's about one percent. Now I am sure that you know a neurosurgeon would tell me, well, three percent is is low, and it, you know there's all sorts of stuff not captured by major adverse event. But I think we're a bit timid about having the conversation because so, you know, we got the mitogen panel back um, as part of this clinical history that Miriam gave us. But actually, that takes like two weeks to come back. So I'd be surprised if that was available to you early on. And so to know that this is or is not a perineoplastic or neoplastic, right, like maybe they have this is kind of a metastatic uh, sort of form of something nasty, melanoma or, or something. Uh, that would be really important up front and way less helpful later when uh, it's already chewed through his brain. So I, you know what, Steph, I totally agree. And I actually think this is maybe like this is the stage at which we should at least start having that conversation and get a neurosurgery opinion um, to get a sense of how nasty would a biopsy be. It, re- it would really help. But would you hold off on treatment until you have those tests? If he's dying, yes. If he's not dying, no. Like right. as in, if he looks like he's dying, right. I would treat him. So, and if it doesn't, if it looks like he's not dying, I would yeah. wait. <laughs> yeah. Makes sense. Okay, so uh, Miriam, can you give us a little bit of an update on how things are going at this point? Yeah. So essentially, uh, to answer that question, the patient 
look like they were dying. Um, so his <laughs> clinical status was getting worse every day. Um, so, you know, this was a man who was running 20K twice a week, which is heck of a lot more than I can do. <laughs> he was nonverbal. He couldn't follow commands. He couldn't walk anymore. He could even swallow safely. Um, so this was a huge dramatic change, um, like over just a few weeks. So essentially... We, in discussion with neurology, their leading diagnosis was autoimmune or perineoplastic encephalitis. And so while we were kind of investigating other things, he ended up getting pulse steroids with 1,000 milligrams of IV methylpred daily for three days. He had no response to this. And so neuro still felt strongly that this was probably an autoimmune or a perineoplastic process. And so we subsequently started IVIG at two grams per kilogram and five divided daily doses. He also had no significant clinical response. Um, to answer your question regarding kind of other imaging, we, he, we did get a CT chest abdopelvis with contrast, uh, and this showed suboptimal distension of the stomach, likely accounting for mild circumferential gastric wall thickening, no evidence of malignancy in the chest, abdomen, and pelvis. So I guess, yeah, are there, are there any other investigations um, that you would like to hear about? Did anyone examine him? Like, does he have any weird skin lesions or anything in his scrotum or anything like that? No, not really. His examination was was pretty unremarkable. Hmm. Miriam's impression of us is dropping by the second here. Yeah, <laughs> I well, just don't. Want, sure. I just don't want to disappoint Miriam. <laughs> I, I'm not sure. I think that your uh, both of you suggested uh, to go where the money is, and maybe the money in this case is the leptomeningeal biopsy. If he's fading away, and we haven't done anything, that that may be the most obvious place to to try and find an answer. I, I'm assuming that all his other laboratory studies aren't pointed in any other direction that we could follow. Is that correct? Yeah. And we actually did have a discussion with the patient and with the neurology service about pursuing a brain biopsy. Um, because of the cranial, because it, all the involvement was in the cranial nerves, um, neurology felt that this can't be targeted for a biopsy. And so it would have to be essentially a, a blind biopsy with no radiological target, which they believed would have a pretty low yield. Um, on top of that, in patients who are known to have hydrocephalus, uh, brain biopsies are associated with greater complications. Um, and so we were kind Kind of on the fence about it. It was kind of our next thing, but thankfully we got our, our answer before we proceeded with something as invasive <laughs> as that. Wow, that is lucky. <laughs> Thank God. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say, Miriam, I'm I'm not sure if you wanted to add it at this point, but but there was kind of another reason that we were a little bit worried about um, proceeding with more invasive kind of CNS investigations for this patient. Miriam, I'm not sure if you wanted to bring that up now or a bit later in the case. Yeah. Um, so another thing that was considered um, is actually whether or not this could be CJD. Um, and so the patient's CSF was sent for prion disease testing. Um, and what happened is that he had a very elevated 1433 protein level. Um, his was 47,560. The normal is less than 20,000. But then the other investigations, which is the endpoint quaking induced conversion and the HTAU protein level were non-reactive. So essentially, once we had that finding, we were very hesitant about further level lumbar punctures and kind of brain biopsies as well. Isn't that the exact time that you'd want to get a brain biopsy, but like where you have kind of now equivocally have some evidence of a CJD? Now, don't you need a biopsy? Do I have that wrong? 
So this was a really interesting part of the case for me as well. And as Miriam's alluded to, you know, we had many other specialists involved, but it caused an extraordinary level of concern, this 1433 test, which is one of the tests for CJD, Mm -hmm. that any sort of like instruments they used or anything, I think there's either had to be thrown out or there's particular cleaning procedures. So it's not transmitted because of the high transmissibility. And then I think as Miriam mentioned, the other thought had just been that because some of those changes, leptomeningeal enhancement was quite focal and related to the cranial nerves, Mm -hmm. that just doing a brain biopsy that was not targeted specifically to those nerves wasn't likely to to yield a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Um, And then as we talked further with neurology and we had those additional tests, which are a bit more uh, specific for CJD and those came back negative, then that sort of moved off our, our differential. But it, it really caused a, a big level of concern in proceeding with even further LPs. Yeah, I bet. Hmm. So it, can 1433 be elevated because of other encephalopathies? Like, does that just, does it become an inflammatory marker or is it fairly specific uh, for CJD? So I later learned um, kind of as we were reviewing this case, a neurologist uh, told me it's kind of the CRP of the brain. So it's it's elevated in um, a lot of different conditions, mm-hmm. um, including even Alzheimer's, dementia, and, and uh, lots of other encephalitis, uh, herpes uh, simplex, uh, hypoxic encephalopathy, when there are met- metastases, perineoplastic disease, and then all sorts of metabolic encephalopathies as well. Um, and typically MRI is uh, more sensitive and specific for CGD. Hmm, okay. Interestingly, like the 1433 assay, you, you can do a peripheral one as a test for rheumatoid arthritis. Hmm. And there's kind of evolving evidence on that. Uh, it's not in, in standard use, but uh, here in BC, it's called a joint stat. Um, and I think it has nothing at all to do with <laughs> nothing at oh, all to do with <laughs> cjd with this case. <laughs> yeah but i could i could see someone um clicking on that on care connect and opening up a 1433 assay and going oh my god <laughs> this person has cjd in their blood but not not so okay so we're kind of back to where we were before the 1433 guys any ideas this is starting to feel more infectious well, I think to me, the, uh, in part I, because it, it didn't respond yeah. to like lytic doses of steroids. Yeah, I, I haven't point. changed. I haven't moved the needle off TB. I think that that's. I don't know enough about fourteen three three to know how that is a cross reactivity. And Danny, I was hoping you wouldn't make a diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis um, <laughs> yeah. in this patient because I think that would be turning it around to the host way too much. But. I don't have anything, you know, in view of the fact that we don't, the, the information we have, uh, either we biopsy his meninges or we treat him empirically. I don't know what else to do. Hmm. You know, I, I, have, I have one other diagnostic thought here. So, uh, like, everything on our list still is conceivable, but many of those infections that we specifically look for are lower. I suppose, Steph, are you saying that you think it's infectious, but not one of the ones that we tested for? So some sort of other nasty viral infection or something more unusual, tropical? Or, um, you know, what kind of infectious disease are you thinking of? Viral, fungal, Mm -hmm. something that, that either was not included in the original battery of tests or that takes a longer time to result uh now i'm kind of like playing the game of morning report here but yeah i'm not sure it's just that if this was a perineoplastic 
or autoimmune encephalitis, you know, IVIG and like a pound of corticosteroids would have <laughs> made a difference. Yeah. Yeah. Your weight in steroids. Yeah. That's a good point. I suppose the other thing that we haven't considered, but should be from an ID point of view, should have been covered by what we've already done is that there is Lyme disease and neurologic complications of Lyme disease do happen. And so, I mean, is this very healthy guy, had he been walking? I thought we got serologies on that, didn't we? That was negative. Don't, I don't remember. Maybe we did, but I don't, I didn't hear them. Oh, okay. Yeah, we had negative serologies. Oh, you had negative serologies, but. So then I, I, okay, go ahead. I mean, I mean. What we're talking about is is his serologies could be negative and he could still have Lyme disease, right? So in the acute phase where you can have carditis and neurologic problems, you can have negative serologies and Lyme disease. Hmm. It's weird. I, I'm not yeah. suggesting. I'm just spitballing. A couple other things that I, I want to have us think about is, so they've done the usual steroids and IVIG. But one of the other things that, that is used with some frequency in autoimmune encephalitis would be PLEX. And one of the kind of new diagnoses to think about that can cause leptomeningeal enhancement and encephalitis or can mimic CNS vasculitis would be anti-MOG, M-O-G. And you can do serum testing on that. And I don't know if it's automatically part of the perineoplastic panel. So I, I would have to, I, I'd look up MOG and I'd read about it, and I'd look for the differential for that as well, or what list does it show up on. But I think in terms of treatments that we could probably add in here at relatively low risk would be PLEX, if there still is strong suspicion of a perineoplastic disease uh, or some antibody-mediated disease. Was that something that was considered in hospital? It was considered, but um, in discussion with neurology, they felt that IVAG is, is kind of very similar. If So if we didn't get any results with IVAG, then we also um, wouldn't necessarily expect a response with PLEX, but it was discussed with the family. Okay. <laughs> can I ask, can I, before before you knew the answer, uh, before the the were any of the suggestions that we made as an approach to therapy while we're surviving this or while the patient's surviving this, were any of those approaches taken? Yeah. So we did uh, new steroids and then IVIG. And the next thing we were considering uh, was actually um, tuberculosis, like empiric treatment for tuberculosis meningitis. Uh, but ultimately, it didn't end up being started. Uh, ID felt that the CSF uh, studies, like with the pleocytosis and the high protein, was pretty consistent with TB meningitis, but the presentation really was not. So that's ultimately why it didn't get started. Puts us in a tricky spot, right? Because if you're like, okay, like, is this um, is this a more common disease with a false negative test, or is it an extremely rare disease, like some sort of weird vasculitis or neurosarcoid or an encephalitis, like like a perineoplastic encephalitis without an identifiable underlying malignancy? And I, I think I have trouble holding in my head the ability to be confident in those tests to be like, well, you know, the PCR was negative, so it's just it isn't TB. I think like I I still worry about that because that situation, negative test, but a not that uncommon disease, still way more likely than some of the rare stuff that we've been talking about and thinking about. And I, I know, Steph, you, you've kind of said this before on the show that this presentation in another country, right, like where it's endemic or at least where people are more comfortable with the various presentations, maybe this is one of those cases that would 
I feel like we say this a lot, get empirically treated for TB up front. Do you think that this like that that still that applies here? I think that's only true if we've previously completely misunderstood this man as being immunocompetent. Um, this is not how, I mean, I don't know, like I'm not a TB expert, but this is not how I think of tuberculosis in an immunocompetent patient. Fair enough. Okay, Miriam, so <laughs> um, what kind of happens next or what new information do you get uh, moving forward from there? So the CT scan really didn't show a whole lot except for this uh, suboptimal distension of the stomach, which we ended up deciding to pursue with endoscopy. Um, it showed a six millimeter lesion. They said essentially it looked benign, but they still took biopsies. In the meantime, as we were waiting for these biopsies and some other investigations, the patient unfortunately had a massive aspiration event. He required intubation and transferred to the ICU. He had repeat head imaging, which showed progressive hydrocephalus. So they ended up consulting neurosurgery, and they actually placed an EVD drain. That didn't really help symptomatically either, but... Hmm. Okay. This isn't going great. We're not we're not doing awesome here. Okay, maybe, Kat, you were involved in the case. Can you maybe give us some context to, like, what you were thinking of um, as you moved through this? Like, what was on your mind at this point, or what, what were you thinking of, of doing about it? Yeah, definitely. So, um... <laughs> Obviously, being quite concerned that this patient is now in the ICU and, uh, well, under somebody else's care, but uh, we still felt very connected to this case as we've been driving things forward, at least so far. That quite subtle finding on the CT scan um, was interesting, and, and I think it was either the ID or the neurology team who, who suggested that we pursue it with endoscopy. But as you've heard from Miriam, the lesion that they did find didn't look particularly concerning. And as we've talked about before, sometimes those results can take some time to go back. And so with the patient now transferred to the ICU, but still continuing to deteriorate, really the focus was on this this question around tuberculosis treatment. And also considering, you know, what other opinion can we get? Um, his wife was a big advocate for him and she felt like Maybe there was another neurologist or, or somebody who might have some expertise. Um, so mm -hmm. we actually called over to Vancouver General Hospital and consulted one of the neurologists there who reviewed all the investigations and, and the full case and um, was pushing quite strongly for, for treatment for tuberculosis. We at this point, again, we're no longer MRP in, so liaised with the ICU team in terms of um, whether they would start that. And I think as you've alluded to before, you know, risk benefit wise, maybe that would have been the path to, to go down at that point. And I think we were pretty close to, to pulling the, the trigger on that, but uh, really quite stuck still with a patient who was still deteriorating and waiting for some of those final investigations. Miriam can maybe tell you a little bit about there's, a, you know, a couple other things that were considered and, you know, one other specialist who was involved um, while we waited for, for some of those results. Yeah, a couple of things we were considering, which I think Dr. Dudkevich is alluding to, is uh, we actually uh, learned more uh, in talking with Neuro that certain CNS, intraocular CNS lymphomas uh, need an ophthalmology assessment. Like they cannot be seen on head imaging. So the patient had an ophthalmology assessment, which was negative. And then another kind of 
weirder etiology that we were considering was Hashimoto's encephalopathy as well, uh, which can kind of present with subacute confusion and this altered level of consciousness. And it can be a bit of a stroke mimic at times. Um, and so for that, the patient had kind of thyroid testing, TSH was normal, T3, T4 were normal, uh, and then uh, thyroglobulin level uh, was normal, and then the antithyroglobulin and TPO antibodies were normal as well. Hmm. Really striking out with the investigations, eh? Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I'm I'm going to kind of give a little, like, I don't know where this case ends up, but this would certainly be a point if I was involved from the rheumatology side where people would be like, hey, should we give cyclophosphamide or rituximab or something like that? And um, I think like the longer you participate in a case, just like time going by, I think kind of makes you want to do stuff. And uh, it's hard to not do stuff, right? Like it's hard to sit on your hands and as someone's deteriorating in front of you, especially with a strong advocate in the family who's asking you to do something, I think it's really hard to not jump to a treatment. But, you know, the very poor response to steroids and IVIG, as I believe Steph mentioned, like that would make me really anxious that I was barking up the wrong tree with with an autoimmune cause. And maybe it's just that it's such a bad autoimmune disease that he needs more steroids and more immune suppression, but I would be really worried about um, starting something heavy duty that we can't take back, cyclophosphamide, rituximab, especially in someone who's likely to have an aspiration event and then did, and now has uh, a bunch of you know instrumentation drain uh, intubated. So they're very high risk for infection now, and then to put them at higher risk with your treatment without really knowing what you're treating, I think... I'd be really anxious about using any immune suppressants. Steph, Barry, like, do you kind of agree with that, or would you be more gung-ho? feels like a weird time to give someone cyclophosphamide or rituximab like in the ICU on a ventilator with a chest infection. Yeah, I, I can't imagine anyone doing that, to be honest. I also don't imagine empiric TB treatment here. Like, I, I, I realize we're all just waiting for some diagnostic sort of nudge here to move this thing forward. I just, I, at this point, I don't know what it is. Yeah, I agree, Danny, that I, I wouldn't do, I know the pressure to do something, but I I think I committed earlier to say that I would treat him for the possibility of TB while waiting for, with the steroids and the anti-tuberculous therapy, recognizing that, yeah, we're close to not doing anything. I mean, we, we I think we have to, I think we have to do something. This is the, the something that's the least toxic and the most efficacious in my mind. Yeah, I, I think we're like, Time is going by, and after a while, it is uh, it is the the case that we are literally not doing anything. We are waiting, um, either for something new to happen, or for there to be a biopsyable target on repeat CT, um, or something like that. Certainly, waiting for like the pathology from the uh, endoscopy to come back, you know, stuff like that. But uh, I know that would be hard to visit that patient every day and say our plan is to not do anything. That is the active plan. And I, I know we would all kind of struggle with that, even if it's even if it's ultimately the right thing to do. Okay, well, Miriam, what happened next? So what happened next is shortly after the patient ended up going to the ICU, the biopsy uh, from the endoscopy came back. It was confirmed to be a poorly differentiated invasive adenocarcinoma. So I guess does this conversation of now a malignancy change your differential and kind of what would you consider next? What do you guys think? I feel responsible for this one because I'm the one who recommended sort of scanning the patient up and down to make sure that there wasn't an underlying malignancy. 
I think now we've found one. It's poorly differentiated. Obviously, there's a like chance for you know metastatic potential. It's tricky because it's also if this could also easily be a red herring. This could be a man with some like you know crazy CNS process and also a concurrently diagnosed stomach cancer. I kind of feel like the odds of those two things being diagnosed coincidentally is just really unlikely. I think this I this would push me towards thinking that this may very well be a perineoplastic process. And, and realize that could be a huge error in my thinking, but that is now how I'm thinking about this. Yeah, that's certainly hard to ignore that you were worried about your perineoplastic thing. You found a cancer and so didn't didn't that answer the question? I, I you know, I don't know enough about uh, that particular cancer to know uh, it's various perineoplastic presentations, so I'd certainly have to. I'd ask you guys, or uh, certainly like read up on it to try and understand if that's a likely culprit for this CNS presentation, or if it's like it really has to be more advanced. You know, there wasn't any lymphadenopathy or or anything, so I, I'm not sure. Is this is this a picture? Does that does this make sense, Steph? Like, is is this small lesion likely to cause that kind of presentation? I don't think there's a very good correlation between the size or even the stage of a cancer and its potential to produce a perineoplastic process. Uh, that again, that could be a misunderstanding on my mm-hmm. part. I've I've read cases for sure where even in the like in the clinical problem solving cases of very small tumors being associated with autoimmune or with perineoplastic encephalitis. So I I don't think that that right. I don't think it doesn't make sense. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, you know, I so so shouldn't we have expected some kind of improvement with steroids or IVIG? I don't know. I I, I would have thought we'd see something. Me too. So like I, my my thinking around perineoplastic things, like I th- I think we kind of have different areas that we focus on there. But in terms of the management, is you manage the phenotype, like whatever disease it is causing, you treat that the way you would normally treat it, as if there was no malignancy, and you treat the underlying malignancy. So if you get perineoplastic dermatomyositis, you can still give standard myositis therapies and they do work, but it is a more refractory phenotype often, unless you're also treating the the malignancy. Also that a lot of them are antibody mediated. And while like, uh, hey, I'm not a neurologist. So if a neurologist is listening, sorry, but I I don't consider IVIG and rituximab to be, uh, sorry, and uh, Plex to be similar enough that if one doesn't work, I wouldn't do the other. Um, in the same way that sometimes we use one immune suppressive and it doesn't work and we use another and it works. So I I still think that um, Plex is a relatively speaking, relatively low risk, potentially high reward in someone who's as sick as this guy is. So I think that would have, would still now be on my list. Can I ask a question? That, and and yeah. I, this is truly an answer I have no idea about. What is there any... Um... In any of these diseases, inflammatory or neoplastic diseases, are there any cytokine measurements in the CSF that would guide us? Not, not that I'm aware of, um, but I think that's that's beyond me. All right. Well, you know, Kat and uh, Miriam, what were you guys? What did you guys make of the finding, and how did you guys act on it, or you folks, I should say? Yeah, so we essentially had the same kind of differential. Like we, we felt that it would be very unlikely that the patient just incidentally had this gastric cancer and it was probably related. So our differential was really either perineoplastic syndrome or a metastatic disease. Perineoplastic syndrome, we felt really unlikely given like no response whatsoever to IVIG or steroids. Uh, so although the patient actually had had CSF cytology sent from an LP sample, before and it was negative, it was resent from the EVD drain. 
So I can I can tell you what happened is essentially the, the CSF from the EVD drain and not the LPs was positive for Cygnet ring cells. Oh, wow. And so four months after the patient's initial presentation, we finally had a diagnosis and it was leptomeningeal carcinomatosis secondary to an asymptomatic gastric adenocarcinoma. Oh my goodness. And did he have response to treatment? No. So unfortunately, um, leptomeningeal carcinomatosis carries a very, very poor prognosis. Uh, treatment is usually of palliative intent, and it's these are you know intrathecal chemo with whole brain radiation or cranial spinal radiation, both mm-hmm. of which have very significant toxicities and very limited survival benefit. And usually, the life expectancy is kind of two to six months after symptom onset. Um, so the patient's family decided to pursue comfort measures, and he actually passed away very shortly afterwards. Oh wow. Ah, I'm sorry to hear that. It's a really, really hard case. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think um, if if I had been working on that case, I think I would have instinctively been like, ah, we found a little something here or there, right? Like you pan scan someone, you're going to find something somewhere. And I think my gut instinct would have been to not not associate the the thickening on the CT necessarily with what was going on in the brain thinking like, well, it's just a little something. And even when you did the EGD and and did a biopsy of a lesion that looked benign, or at least not too sinister, I even think even then, I wouldn't have been betting my money that these things are going to be totally related. So I think I would have been late to the party in terms of like recognizing the the relationship between those two pieces of the puzzle, which uh, Mm. is a little embarrassing. (laughs) <laughs> so no, it's 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 uh, not. I, I'm not sure that I would have uh, solved it. Yeah. You know, Danny, this reminds me of some wisdom that I gained as I was finishing my fellowship. For a period of time, I worked with uh, Dr. Debbie Rosenbaum, who's now like one of our colleagues mm-hmm. and internist at St. Paul's. And I remember that she and I at that time had a very different style. And, and I think that I learned a ton from Debbie. I, I owe her a lot. And one thing that she taught me was that as diagnosticians, one of our jobs is really to rule things out. And so Debbie's tendency at that time, at least, was to order more tests than I was interested in ordering. If I didn't see like an obvious link between a symptom and another symptom or a symptom in the process that I thought was going on, I would try to discount it or ignore it. And she she ordered more things. And I think she was more thorough than I was. And I think she was more open-minded than I was. And she was more curious than I was. And so I think in this case, you know, if you if the thought has crossed your mind that the process could be either a metastatic one or a perineoplastic one, and you've gone ahead and ordered pan scanning, even if you don't like to do pan scanning, you're then beholden to work up whatever little abnormality mm-hmm. you find. And and I think you would have sure. done that. I hope so. And I think for, for me, this was a really important learning point in this case is especially where something is really unclear and you're stuck and doing nothing as we were that maybe no finding is too insignificant to pursue further and and really you know i got involved later in this case and in how we were managing the ward on ctu but that you know that ct scan then following the biopsy was really ultimately the clue to this diagnosis together with that CSF sample from the extraventricular drain. And I, I didn't know that either, that you might find negative CSF findings from elsewhere, more distant from where the process was actually occurring. And so I think Miriam and I both probably through going through this case, learned some really important new things about diagnosis and what is a very 
rare disease. And um, Miriam could tell you that uh, there's really only 10 other cases that we were able to find reporting this leptomeningeal carcinomatosis from gastric cancer. So it is quite a rare diagnosis and obviously a very unfortunate outcome in this case. But uh, I think those were really, I guess, the, the main takeaway was, as you've said, Steph, that you know, no finding might be too insignificant to further investigate, especially mm-hmm. when you really don't know what's going on. Well, I want to put it in perspective, and, and that's the... Uh... If you'd found this diagnosis earlier, and it's not to say that we weren't trying hard or you weren't trying hard to find the diagnosis, given that he would have been palliated earlier, I don't think that finding the diagnosis earlier at his neurologic presentation was going to change things. Yeah, perhaps you're right. You know, I, I reflecting even on the uh, the idea of like the cytology being negative the first time, think like we do have to like keep in mind like cytology is like you need volume like you need lots and lots of fluid to be able to catch a few cells here and there or obviously like as things get worse maybe it's just the more uh, concentration of those cells it, it's a good reminder though like that that's a I, I think that piece for me is like remember the test characteristics of the test that you're sending like how how useful how sensitive is cytology if you send a little bit from an LP it's probably very poor. And so to not like to almost like keep in your head, it's almost as though we haven't sent it yet. So like, let's consider that moving forward. Maybe we need to keep sending it. I'll uh, I'll have to roll that into my thinking when I see a case like this uh, down the line. Well, I think you're right, Danny. And I, but, but the the problem is, is that then no test is negative. If you want it to be positive, you continue to just do the test over and over and over again. So I think the thought that came out earlier was the the one the abnormality that was recognized without a, an explanation was the leptomeningeal enhancement, mm-hmm. and so both you and Steph suggested a biopsy, and I think you would have found the answer much earlier if that were this if if that had been pursued. I suppose he was in all of the unluckiness. An additional piece of bad luck was that there was nothing accessible to biopsy. Obviously, if it was like in a broader, easier to access piece of leptomeninges, maybe, yeah, we could have short-circuited this and had a, a, a diagnosis a lot sooner or shortcut it at least. Tough case. Any other takeaways, folks? Well, the only other thing I'd say is that, you know, we, we seem to come to this impasse, not just with this case, but many, many cases where the neurosurgical component is the barrier it to make an I'd like to sit in on, at times, a neurosurgical discussion when, from, from the neurosurgeon's point of view about internists petitioning them to do certain procedures because I don't know the threshold. Is it just an individual neurosurgeon or is this neurosurgical principles or whatever is making them suggest this isn't the situation? And mm-hmm. we petition it and they say their answer and I don't know where that, why they have that answer. Mm-hmm. Marion, did you have any other takeaways? Yeah, um, I just wanted to kind of share um, the patient's perspective here, which kind of echoes very much what uh, Dr. Um, Barry Casson was saying. And so to, you know, in, in a direct quote from the patient's wife, um, although it would not have changed the outcome, had a diagnosis been reached earlier, it may have prevented the need for the ICU admission and the indignities that came with it. And he may have been able to pass away more comfortably in a hospice situation. So, you know, kind of to echo that, had we reached a diagnosis earlier, no, we would not have changed the outcome but I think it, it would have made a difference for, for the patient and this family. 
Mm-hmm. Sounds like to to access that diagnosis, right? To do the dangerous brain biopsy or the nearly impossible brain biopsy, you may have cost something else there to get that that answer sooner. So that's a really thoughtful insight from the family member. Yeah, and I think that's the last piece I would add is just how really phenomenal the patient's wife was in in this case as as an advocate for him, but also just her strength in dealing with everything that they went through. And and she's been really, you know, instrumental in providing her perspective and and helping us as we put this case together. So just a, a big thank you goes out to her and, and she really was by her husband's side with photos of what he looked like on his last kayaking trip throughout his hospital stay, just to remind us, uh, you know, who who this man was before everything he went through. Um, so just to, to finish off with that, not a diagnostic reasoning piece, but um, just a very humanistic element to this case that I think was was really important. Well, thanks. Thanks to both of you for bringing that case. That's a, a, a sad end, but important lessons in there. And uh, we certainly appreciate uh, his wife for uh, kind of giving us access to the case, letting us chat about it. So thank you. Guys, anything else uh, on your minds before we uh, before we settle up? Yeah, but, but I also think that uh, not only the, to the family, but, but to the caregivers and the people that were trying to provide the, the answers and the support. I mean, I think this is a real, it just, it, it's a reflection on the anxiety and the and the thought that goes into our processes. But the one caveat I would say is that we're used to sampling and waiting, sampling and waiting, sampling and waiting. And, and I think that when you're in this situation, sampling and waiting is not an easy situation for us, and it's awful for the family and the patient. Steph, anything, uh, anything else to close us up? No, that was a really great case. I'm exhausted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank, All thank right. you so well, much, Miriam, for presenting. Thank that. you, Miriam. Thanks, Thank Miriam. you for having me. Happy to be here. Our pleasure. Okay, well, that's it for uh, for this episode of St. Paul's Morning Report. We are supported by the St. Paul's Hospital Foundation and QXMD Read. So we will be putting more cases together this year. Again, if you have any cases that you would like to bring to us, uh, we would love to hear from you. So get in touch. And again, email foundationmorningreport at gmail.com. Website is stpaulsmorningreport.com. And on Twitter, it's at Paul underscore report. And looking forward to more cases with all of you. And Kat, welcome to the team. Thank you again. All right. Bye, everyone.